Today I am speaking with Douglas Rushkoff. Douglas has been named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT. He is an award-winning author, broadcaster, and documentarian who studies human autonomy in the digital age. He's often described as a media theorist. He's the host of the popular Team Human podcast, and he's written 20 books, including the bestsellers Present Shock and Program or Be Programmed. He's written regular columns for Medium, CNN, The Daily Beast, and The Guardian. And he's made documentaries for PBS's show Frontline. And today we discuss his work and his most recent book, which is also titled Team Human. Anyway, it was great to talk to Douglas. We get into many of these issues, and he is certainly someone who spent a lot of time thinking about where we're all headed online. So, now without further delay, I bring you Douglas Rushkoff. I am here with Douglas Rushkoff. Douglas, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So you, you have a, a very interesting job description and background. How, how do you describe what you do and, and your intellectual journey? I mean, I guess what I do is I, I'm uh, arguing for human autonomy or human agency in, in an increasingly digital age. And I guess what brought me here was originally I was a, uh, I was a theater director and I got fed up with narrative, really, especially these closed-ended, predictable, but felt like almost propagandistic narrative of most theater. And the internet came around, and I saw chances for participation and interactivity and, you know, sort of the pre-open source participatory narrative that we could rewrite the human story and print our own money and make our own meaning. And, uh, you know, started to write books about that. And I wrote a book called Siberia about designer reality and one called Media Virus, which was celebrating this new stuff called viral media, which seemed like a good thing at the time. And uh, then I watched as the Internet really became kind of the poster child for a, a failing Nasdaq stock exchange and all of these companies from Google to Facebook that said they would never be about advertising became the biggest advertising companies in the world. And these tools, which I thought were going to be the new gateway or gateway drug in some ways to a, a new kind of collective human imagination, ended up being the opposite. So I've been uh, not really uh, writing books or struggling against technology so much as asking people to uh, retrieve the human and bring it forward and embed it in the digital infrastructure rather than just, you know, surrendering all of this power and all of these algorithms to agendas that don't really have our best interests at heart. You're often described as a media theorist. Is that a label you happily wear or does that kind of miss most of what you're up to? I mean, I, I happily wear it when people understand media theorist in the way I do, but... <laughs> To most people, I feel like the, the word media theorist sounds like some kind of a, a PBS boring show that, <laughs> or, or some, something that's good for you. But when I, when I think of someone like, you know, uh, Walter Ong or Marshall McLuhan or, right. or Lewis Mumford, then yeah, because I don't mind being a media theorist because almost everything is media. It's almost hard to figure out, you know, something that's not media. So uh, someone who thinks about it, sure, but 
I guess over time I've become a bit more of a, a social activist or a an economic thinker. It's kind of hard to, to just to say I'm thinking about you know like the content on television. I'm thinking more about the platforms and the the political right. economy that's driving this media. Was McLuhan influential for you? You know, I guess I'm I should be embarrassed to say. I mean, I didn't really read McLuhan. He's famously unreadable. Yeah, maybe that's why. But I didn't read him until after people said, oh, your work is like McLuhan's. So I was, you know, three books in, really. I, I, it was after Media Virus. People started to say, this is what, you know, McLuhan was saying. And so then, you know, I went back and read him afterwards. And yeah, he was, you know, he was crazy smart. But it's it's a bit like reading Torah or something where everything he says, I could say, oh, it means this or it means that. You know, so while it's this, it's a terrific intellectual exercise, it's a bit like it, it, it becomes like James Joyce that where you can almost argue about it more than make sense of it sometimes. I mean, and part of why, honestly, part of why I'm, I'm excited to be talking with you is because there's certain ideas that I'm really uh, unresolved about and, and right. sort of certain, certain understandings of the, the, the human story, if you will that I'm still really challenged by. And, you know, in writing this book, I, I, I feel like on the one hand, I'm, I'm maybe accidentally or unintentionally telling a new myth, you know, or, or you know, that, oh, I'm, I'm sort of arguing in this book that humanity is a team sport. And that, you know, if you look at evolution, or even read Darwin, there's just as many examples of cooperation and collaboration leading to you know, species success as there is competition. And that if we want to understand human beings as the most advanced species, we should think about, about the, the reasons for that are our, our language and collaboration and, you know, increasing brain size. So the Dunbar number got up to over 100 people that we could, you know, collaborate and coordinate. And then I, of course, I argue that all the institutions and media and technologies that we came up with to enhance that collaboration they tend to be used against that. So instead of bringing people together, social media atomizes people into their separate silos. Or even you can go back and see how text abstracted people from the sort of tribal oral culture. And then you could even argue that language before that disconnected people from some essential, you know, grunts or something. But that becomes an almost Eden-like myth that I don't want to fall into to say, oh, don't listen to the libertarian story. Listen to this story instead. But then we're stuck in another story. You know? And so what, what I'm really aching for, what I'm looking to do is to give people reasons to celebrate humanity for its own sake and human values and retrieve what, what I consider to be, and I hate even the word, but these essential human values without falling or without requiring some mythology or some story to justify it. You know, I'd rather justify mm. it, you know, with science or with common sense or with some so, sort of an ethical template than, you know, than some other story. Right. My first reaction to some of those ideas is that, you know, basically everything we do, virtually everything has a potential upside and downside. And the thing that empowers us the lever that we can pull that moves a lot in our world or in our experience also shifts some things that we don't want to see move. 
as you said, you could walk this all the way back to the dawn of language, right? And obviously, language is the source of virtually everything we do that makes us recognizably human, right? It is the main differentiator. And yet language, for, you know, under one construal, I mean, anyone who has taken psychedelics or, or spent a lot of time meditating or trying to learn to meditate, recognizes that this compulsive conceptualizing through language, this tiling over of experience that we do uh, just as a matter of course, once we learn to think linguistically, it is, in most cases, the limiting factor on our well-being in so many moments, because so much of the conversation we have with ourselves is a source of anxiety and despair, and yet we can't have civilization without our full linguistic competence, and we, you know, we certainly want to be able to use it on demand all the time. And basically, any other complex technology built on language, you know, every form of media has had this upside and downside. So as I, you, you briefly gestured at this now fairly famous notion that just the mere introduction of print and a widespread ability for, for you know, people to read and write was bemoaned by many intellectuals of the time as a guaranteed way to lose our collective memory. The oral tradition would erode, each person's capacity to, to memorize things would, would disappear, and given the, the advantages of print and reading, that seems like a fairly fatuous concern, and yet it, it probably is also true, right? You can carry that forward into the present with respect to the way markets and digital technology are, are changing us. Right. I mean, the one difference, really, between speech, text, radio, television, and, and today, and digital technology, is that the algorithms that, that we're building, the, the artificial intelligences that we're building, you know, continue on. You know, they, yeah. they change themselves as they go. You know, if, the, if the words that we spoke you know, mutated after they were out of our mouths, it, it would be, you know, in order to affect people differently, it would be very different than if they were just coming from us. So I, I get concerned that, that people are not, and certainly the companies that are, that are building these technologies don't quite realize what they're setting in motion, that, that, that the values that they're embedding in these technologies end up, well, the technologies end up doing what we tell them, but by any means that they see fit. You know, they keep going and we don't even, we're not even privy to the techniques that they're using to uh, elicit whatever response they want from us. So while I, I, I could certainly look at capitalism as a system that ended up seemingly kind of having its own agenda and capitalism working on us and the, the defenseless CEO or the unconscious shareholder or the worker who's being exploited, that all of these people are kind of stuck in this system that they don't understand. But digital technology seems to make this, this reversal between you know, the figure in the ground, or I guess McLuhan would say the medium and the message, but I really just think it's the subject and the object, that instead of having these tools that we're putting out there to get things that we want or to, to, to help us in some way, we're using these tools to get something out of us. You know, we've turned these, this language, these machines on the human psyche. And whether we're using Las Vegas slot machine algorithms or telling them 
to develop their own. They're looking for exploits in the human psyche. So the exploits aren't things that we look at or notice while we're meditating and go, oh, that's interesting. This must have evolved from a human need to do something. And while on one level, it's a neurosis, on the other level, it's part of my human strength. And we could look at, you know, how do I want to use this in my life? The algorithm just sees it as a whole. Oh, look, I can, I can leverage that person's instinct for reciprocity. Or look, I can see this one trying to establish rapport and taking all of these painstakingly evolved social mechanisms and using them against us. You know, and that's where I can sort of feel that there's a kind of a good and an evil, you know, and, and, and I never really go there in any of my prior work. I tried to be kind of non-judgmental, but now I'm really arguing that, that whenever one of these technologies or languages or algorithms, when they're bringing us together, they're doing good. And when they're turning us against each other, they're doing bad. Just to have almost a simple litmus test for people to understand, you know, am I helping or hurting? Right. Well, so are there companies that are getting to scale in the digital economy that are actually doing it well, that are at all aligned with your more idealistic notions of what the internet could be doing to us and for us? Well, I don't I don't know that there are companies that are doing it. There's certainly organizations that are are doing it, you know, whether it's a Mozilla, you know, which invented the browser really, or archive.org, which is a great organization where you know it's tremendous uh, uh you know the, the the film archives and text archives and the Gutenberg project. You know, the example everyone uses, uh, Wikipedia is at scale and doing a good job, but they're not, they're not companies as such. You know, the only companies I'm really seeing doing that are, are cooperatives, you know, and I've gotten inspired by the, the platform cooperative movement. And I mean, there's many companies that sort of model themselves on the, the famous Spanish Mondragon cooperative, but basically where, where workers own the company. But that's not necessarily just a digital tradition, you know. Uh, uh, Associated Press is a is a co-op. Uh, Ace True Value Hardware is a is an employee owned co-op. So I, I've seen things reach scale that way, but usually, or at least so far, they're not, you know, these traditional shareholder owned companies. How would you compare something like Netflix to Facebook? I consider myself a a reluctant and uh, none too well informed student of digital capitalism. Essentially, I mean, I have my having a podcast and and other endeavors. I've just I've had to turn more and more attention to this, but I feel quite late to begin analyzing all of this. But when I, you know, in sort of the front facing, just consumer eye view of these platforms, when I look at Netflix. I mean, clearly they're playing games with algorithms and they're trying to figure out how to maximize my time on their platform. But my experience is I want them to have all the content they can have. I want them to promote content that I find interesting rather than boring or, or a haphazard connection between my interests and what they're promoting. So insofar as their algorithms begin to read my mind and anticipate what I will find interesting, and they do that better and better, and it becomes stickier and stickier. On some level, I don't see the downside. I mean, I, I can curate the contents of my own consciousness enough to know that if I've spent 
17 uninterrupted hours on Netflix, I've got a problem. So if every time I open that app, things just get better and better, that's good. And the, the business model there is I have to pay a subscription fee and you know, presumably they're not selling my data to anybody and I'm not the product, right? Whereas with Facebook, everything is flipped and again, they're trying to game my attention and keep me on site. In the case of Facebook, it's completely ineffectual, but they're doing that in order to sell my attention against ads. And we know, you know, more and more about the downside of that, of those incentives and that business model. Do you see the distinction between these two companies this way, or, or is there something I'm missing? No, I, I definitely see that the, uh, Netflix versus Facebook is sort of the same thing to me as uh, Apple versus Google, where, you know, here's a company where if I've got the money, and that's kind of the, the sticking point, if I've got the money to pay for it, I can buy television and technology and email and all of these things that are treating me as the customer. And I'm paying for my privacy. I'm paying for my customization. I'm paying for it to understand me for my benefit and my enjoyment. Whereas on, on Facebook or Google, you know, we understand that we're not the customer and that someone else is paying Facebook or Google to understand us for their benefit. And then not just understand us, but tweak us to their benefit. So if Facebook can determine with 80% accuracy that I'm going to go on a diet in the next six weeks, I'm going to start seeing advertising and updates and things to push me towards going on a diet. And they're not just doing that to sell the specific products, the specific diet products that are, that are on their site, but to increase that 80% to 90%. They want to increase the likelihood that I will do the thing that they've predicted I do. So, you know, when I when I look at a platform like that or when I look at the way YouTube makes suggestions of what videos I should watch and when I go down 3-4 videos in, I'm always at some really dangerously extreme version of whatever it was that I was initially interested in. You know, I see these platforms turning me into a caricature of myself or trying to get me to behave more consistently with the statistical algorithm that's predicted my behavior. Whereas on, on Netflix, the extent to which they use algorithms to deliver up to me what I might like, I, I find that almost part of the entertainment. You know, I'm interested when I finished Narcos Mexico, you know, and I, the next, if they knew I finished it, then the next morning I look in my inbox and they say, Here's what we think you might like next, you know, based on the last six things I watched, as well as how much I paused, how quickly I got through them. I mean, they're using a wealth of information. I find it, I find it interesting, and I almost enjoy, and maybe this is just sickness, but I enjoy using it as a mirror. You know, in other words, what shows do I have to watch on Netflix to get it to suggest Roma for me? Right. Because right. I, I wanted to think that I'm that kind of person. Yeah, so, apparently you're not that kind of person. <laughs> I guess not. I watch too much, uh, too much, you know, Game of Thrones kinds of right, things, right. and they mm -hmm. don't realize that I have that side. But the the downside with Netflix and their algorithms is not so much what they suggest, but sometimes I'm a little creeped out by the way they construct some of their shows. So you know, we know that. House of Cards was partly derived 
through algorithms. They found out that, oh, people that like David Fincher also like political intrigue, also like Kevin Spacey. And oh, I they, didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. And they concocted it. And then I, I, I wondered why the show kind of went through me like cheese doodles or something. You know, it's, it's, as, it's like cheese doodles is this sort of industrial age right. taste styrofoam yeah. sensation. That, that's, that's constructed for me to keep eating it compulsively, but it doesn't actually deliver any nutrition. And I kind of felt that way, felt that way with those shows. But the biggest problem right now, and, and it shouldn't be seen as a problem, is you, know, you get what you pay for. And I, I do get concerned about you know, bifurcating society into these two classes of people, those of us who can afford you know, to maintain our autonomy by paying for our technologies and those I suppose, who still need the remedial help of, of marketing on free platforms. Well, that really is the source of the tension I see, because again, I, I have a podcaster's eye view of this, but as someone who's decided not to take ads and to just have listeners support the show, I now have a very clear view of these two business models. There's just the PBS NPR version, which is, you know, this thing is free, and if you want to support it, you can. And I know how that works. And, you know, I've just released a, a meditation app, which is a subscription-only service through the App Store, through the Google Play Store. So that's all behind a paywall. And I see that you, you, on the podcast side, I have been engaged in this fairly heavy-handed effort to educate my audience to support this work if they want it to exist. You know, many more people engage with the podcast than have ever engaged with my books. I know. I listened to your your that little six minute piece you did on why you have people, uh, why you want people to contribute, and that it articulated what the, the <laughs> exact same thing I feel is. You know, I'll do one podcast, or or I did one of those TED talks. For, you know, for free, more right. people watch that TED talk than have bought all the books I've ever written combined. Yeah, it's amazing. And you want that kind of reach, obviously. You want because the goal is to, as a writer or as a public intellectual or or someone with any ideas that you want to spread, you want to reach as many people as can conceivably find them these ideas valuable. And yet, what's happened here is that I mean, you know, your phrase "you get what you pay for," I think is true, and yet it's antithetical to everyone's expectations. You know, even mine, frankly online. I mean, we're expecting our information to be free. I mean, there, there are certain contexts where people understand that they're going to hit a paywall and that's somehow fine. And you know, like Netflix is the classic example. Here's a pretty clear case. So like Joe Rogan has a podcast. It's obviously free. It's supported by, by ads. You know, you know, millions and millions of people listen to it. But then he often releases a comedy special on Netflix. I don't think there's anyone thinking that they should be able to watch his special for free. Like, I don't think he gets angry emails saying, what the hell, why are you putting this behind Netflix's paywall? But if he put it on YouTube, if he put it online in some other context and put it behind a paywall, you know, it was like Vimeo On Demand or something, and he was charging $5 for people to see it, I think he would get a lot of grief over that. And it's just a very odd situation where we we're in certain contexts and the widest possible context online, we have trained ourselves to expect things for free. And yet the only way free is possible is this increasingly insidious ad model 
that is gaming people's attention and in certain contexts it's innocuous. I mean I don't I don't I'm not against ads across the board, but in others it just feels like this is the problem we want to figure out how to solve and yet you know even you voice the concern. I mean there, you know if if we put everything behind a paywall, then we have a real problem of people not being able to get access to content that we really do want to spread as widely as possible. Right. I mean, I heard your conversation with Jaron Lanier about this, and it's interesting. And he was sort of blaming the famous truncated uh, Stuart Brand quote, you know, information wants to be free, which always people leave off, but information also wants to be protected is the second half of that sentence. Apologies to Stuart. Yeah. But um, I don't think... I look back at the the early internet, and the reason why everything was free is because the internet was a, a university-based system. You know, we were using Gopher and Veronica. It's these early, you know, pre-visual text-only internet search retrieval systems, and you would download and share documents, but it was all university archives. It was free material. So because it was part of a nonprofit academic world because people actually signed an agreement before they went on the net saying, I promise I'm using this for research purposes. I'm not going to do anything commercial on here. I'm not going to advertise anything. You actually signed an agreement. It, it set up a very expectations of a very different place. The internet really was intended at that point to become a commons. Then once we brought business on, businesses really leveraged and exploited that that freeness, that, that the, the sense that everybody wanted things to be free without ever really bringing forward that sort of academic ethos along with it. And it, it created a real mess. And then I remember the moment that I really thought it would change, and maybe it did, was when Steve Jobs did his iPad demo. And he was sitting in this big easy chair and showing a different posture. And the iPad worked differently. The iPad you couldn't just kind of download files the way you did with your computer. Now you were going to go through an iTunes store to look at stuff. And I feel like what he was trying to do, almost with a, the skill of a neurolinguistic programmer, he was trying to anchor this device in a different social contract between the user and the content maker. And to some extent, it worked, at least in the Apple universe. He, he said, look, it's going to be easier and better to buy something through iTunes than to go play around on Napster, you know, just collecting <laughs> collecting music for the sake of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is once you move to digital and people understand that there's zero marginal cost in producing the content, right? And that their use of a file doesn't prevent anyone else from using that same MP3 or whatever it is. At least psychologically, that seems to be one of the reasons why there's this expectation that that free is the actual right. the ethical norm. And they're okay with that, you know. And you know, first they came for the musicians, and I said nothing. And they came for the cab drivers, and I said nothing, you know. And then once they come for me, you know. So the art, the thing that people are upset about is not that they're ruining all these other people's jobs and taking all this stuff. <laughs> the thing that they worry about is well. Now my privacy is being invaded. So now I'm going to get, you know, now I'm going to get up in arms about what, you know, what's happening here. Or now my job is in danger. So now I'm going to get upset about that. Yeah. Well, people it, it speak specifically of what it's like to be a writer. 
recently an article, I think it was not bad in the New York Times, it might have been the Washington Post, but in the last couple of weeks talking about the economics of writing and how dismal they've become. And it's amazing. I mean, I, I, you know, I've had some sense of this for some time, but to read these stats was fairly alarming. I mean, like the, the average professional writer who's making some portion of his or her living from writing is living below the poverty line. And even, you know, you have to be a, a massive outlier in terms of, you know, just not, not even an ordinary bestseller to make a, a very good living from writing. And for the most part, professional writers have to have other jobs. I mean, most professional writers who turn out a book every year or two or three have professorships or they have something else that's paying the bills. And that's not an optimal world to live in, especially when you throw in journalism there, where you know, which is massively underfunded. And ironically, we're living to some degree in a recent uh, heyday of journalism because of how awful Trump is. Still, there's a kind of winner-take-all effect there where you have the New York Times and the Atlantic doing well and, and then everyone else still going slowly or quickly bankrupt. How do you view journalism and the life of a, of a writer at this point? It's, it's harder. You know, I'm, I'm lucky in that, you know, when I wrote my first books in the early 90s, it was still this, the, the end of the golden period for authors where, you know, I would, I would write a book that sold a lot less than my books do now. But I would get my my publisher would send me on airplanes on a book tour. Mm-hmm. I'd stay mm-hmm. in the author's suite of hotels. You know, and they had these special suites that we would go to at fireplaces and the books of all the people who had stayed in it before. It was this and you'd get this person called a media escort who would take you <laughs> right. to your right. events in the different towns. Yeah. Who was uh, also being paid somehow. Who was also being somehow. Right. And then you know, whatever, uh, you know, Viacom buys Simon and Schuster, which buys, you know, each of the little publishers and all the slack and went out of the wheel somehow. It's like we, we, they started to use just much more accurate spreadsheets and all the wiggle room that we had in publishing. It was an industry that somehow just kind of got by about at the same size, I guess, for a few centuries. It just sort of worked. And we lost the ability to kind of fudge our way through that. And they, they started to demand better margins and more of a squeeze. And, you know, and, and yeah, the power law dynamics of the internet then came into it. So it's, it's better for a publisher to have, uh, to, to sell, you know, a Taylor Swift's autobiography, you know, and sell, sell half a million copies of that than 40,000 copies of a book that's going to actually change the way people think. And it, it's tricky. I, you know, decided to get my uh, uh, PhD late. I got my PhD when I was 50 or 49. And that was right after the 2007 crash, when all the publishers were asking for books that could help business people one way or another. Every book I wrote was supposed to have a a business self-help aspect to it. So I got a university job so that I could write books, you know, like Programmer Be Programmed in Present Shock or Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. These ones or this one, Team Human, which you know are 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 books promoting humanism, and I don't have to worry as much about whether I sell you know five thousand or fifty thousand copies, and and but it's it's sad. I've done university lectures where college students a, a common question I've gotten is why should journalists get paid for what they do if I could blog as easily as them? 
Right. So they've almost lost all touch with the That's idea. one of the more, I mean, there's so much in that. It's one of the more terrifying questions I've heard. Yeah, it's frightening. I mean, the way I answer it now is, well, you know, if governments and corporations can spend, you know, billions of dollars on propaganda, don't you want someone who has enough money to spend a couple of weeks deconstructing what you're being told? You know, you know, and it's yeah. it, it makes no sense. If I had to list my fears around what technology is doing to us, the erosion of the economics of journalism is one, and, and also just the distortion of their their incentives. I mean, the fact that even our best organs of journalism are part of the clickbait logic, and it's really it's incentivizing all the wrong things. But what we want, we should be able to reverse engineer this. We know we want smart people to be well compensated for taking, you know, months to really fully explore and vet topics of great social importance. And so the question is, how do we get there? And the the, the idea that someone could take months to write the best piece that has been written in a decade on the threat of nuclear war, say, right? And that that could just, you know, just sink below the noise of, you know, Kim Kardashian's latest tweet or, uh, or uh, in, the same, in a similar vein, our, the, our president's latest tweet and just disappear from a news cycle, you know, and therefore earn comparatively little ad revenue. And that the, the net message of all of that is that, you know, those kinds of journalistic efforts don't pay for themselves and that we really don't need people to hold those jobs because we can't figure out how to pay them. That's very scary to me. Well, yeah, and it, and it should be. I mean, and we do see, you know, a few uh, uh, networks or cooperatives, you know, the, like the journalists who, uh, who put together the, uh, the Panama Papers. And, you know, we see some, some response to that. I mean, I don't like the 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 alternative the the opposite alternative where it it started to feel like uh, to me anyway coming up that the the journalists who got the the well who got the the biggest platforms tended to be people who were paid well enough by the system not to challenge neoliberalism <laughs> it's like well it's if the if you pay the journalists enough then they're going to support the system as it is. They'll drink martinis and shut up. So now that it's getting harder and harder for journalists to make ends meet, I feel like a little bit of them, there might be a little bit of, of, of a positive effect in terms of, at least in terms of their politics. And they're looking at saying, oh, you know, now I'm a gig worker. Now I'm in precarity. There's something, and there's something valuable to, you know, to not being able to just, you know, graduate an Ivy League school and get to write books, you know, for the rest of your life. But well, what do you do with the fact that, and this seems to be the counter-argument, is that people want what they want, and that it's not an accident that certain media products get, you know, tens of millions of, of views, and certain others just sink beneath the waves, no matter how valid or valuable the content is, right? So if, if, if it's just a fact, that only 8,000 people in the United States really want to read the next white paper about climate change, well, then you can't monetize that white paper because people just don't care about climate change. Now, they should care about it, and we have to keep trying to figure out how to make them care about it. But if they don't care about it, 
given the glut of information, I mean, given the fact that, again, you know, you can just binge watch Game of Thrones for the third time and you can't stop people from doing that, this is just a kind of fool's errand to figure out how to get them to take their medicine. On on some level, what we're saying is that if it can't be made interesting enough and titillating enough so as to actually survive competition with everything else that's interesting and titillating, well, then maybe it deserves to sink, even if that is selecting for the Kardashians of the world and burying important stories. You know, it's it's interesting. And, and, and I make the same sort of argument in Team Human when I'm, I'm kind of defending the work of David Lynch against the more commercial kinds of movies and the way that Hollywood will use that argument. They'll say, well, look, people in the mall, they want to see the blockbuster with the spoiler and the climactic ending. They don't want to see the thing that makes you think. They don't want, you know, the, the, they don't want the strange. But I think people do deep down want that. I, I do think people want to experience awe and they want to engage with, with paradox and with ambiguity and with, with, with depth. You know, I get so, I mean, what, what makes me so annoyed with Netflix is that you can't talk about a Netflix show with someone else because you'll be on season three, episode seven, and they're on season two, episode one, and you're going to spoil something for them because these shows themselves are basically, you know, timelines of IP, of little IP bombs, the little spoilers that show up every three or four, every three or four episodes. It's their, it's like the value of the thing and you you keep un, undoing them it's oh mr robot he is his father or you know it's a each one of them has these almost stock stock reversals and you look at 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 real art i mean what's the spoiler in a in a david lynch movie i mean i couldn't even under i couldn't even tell you what it was about after i've seen it twice anyway even though you know even though I've I've loved it, but the idea that that uh, that people that we should deliver what people want because because this is this is what they're they're paying tickets for doesn't really make sense when the whole thing has been has been contextualized that way. And I, in other words, I don't think I don't think that's what people really want so much as that's what we're being we're being trained or that that these um. There are shows that almost that almost open up wonder or that almost make deep arguments or books that make quasi deep arguments, but then just solve everything at the end. There is a right answer. So in, in a, a show, I don't know if you saw that Westworld show on HBO. No, there is an answer. It's all these timelines that are all over the place. And then you find out, oh. These were different timelines, and this happened then, and this happened then, and this happened now. And it's just a kind of a postmodern pyrotechnic, but it gets you to that same place where there is an answer. And every article we write is supposed to have, yes, therefore you should take echinacea or don't take echinacea or vote for Trump or don't vote for Trump. This, this need to give people the conclusion as if, well, I'm not going to pay you for an article or, or a book. If you don't give me the answer by the end, I'm not going to watch your movie unless everything works out by the end. And that's in some ways the most dangerous aspect of this of this cultural collapse that we're in. 
that everything has to have an answer or every effort has to have a utility value that's recognizable, at least by the time you've done this thing, because you can't reduce all human activity, all writing, all product, all culture to its utilitarian value. You know, there, and, and this is where I get into that weird, you know, mythic religious place that I'm still uncomfortable speaking out loud. But, you know, I just read, I reread Horkheimer. He wrote this book, The Eclipse of Reason. And he was talking about the difference between reason with a capital R, the real reasons, the, 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 the essential human values we do things versus the small r utilitarian reasons we do things. And what I'm really trying to do is stress that human beings have capital R reasons for things, that there is, that there is something more going on here that meets the eye. And I don't just mean some magical other dimension, but some essential value to, to human camaraderie, to establishing rapport, to being together, to looking in someone's eyes. It's not, I mean, yes, it's the mirror neurons fire and the oxytocin goes through your bloodstream and your, your breathing rates sync up. And this is the stuff that you studied, you know, and, and, and there's a, an evolutionary small r reason to establish rapport, but is there another one? Is there a value? Is there a, a, a meaning, a meaning to this? And, and that's the part I'm not willing to give up. And that's the, the big argument that I guess the real thing I'm in now is the argument with the transhumanists or the, the posthumanists or the singularitans who, who really believe that technology is our evolutionary successor and we should pass the torch to technology because tech will not only write a more factual article and a more utilitarian program, but you know, tech is more complicated. It's a, a, more, a more complex home for information than the human mind. So we should, you know, uh, pass the torch. And when I say no, that human beings are special, and I start talking about awe and meditation and, and, and camaraderie and, and establishing rapport, I mean, the one that the famous transhumanist, I'll leave him nameless, I was on a panel with him, and he said, oh, Rushkov, you're just saying that because you're a human, you know, as if it was hubris for me to argue this, to argue for humanity. And that's when I decided, okay, I'll be on team human. I'll, I'll, I'll make a bet that there's something important here because without that as a starting place, I find it hard to make any of the arguments that we're making, whether they're against the market or against automation or against all of our stuff being for free or the collapse of quality or just giving in to consumerism. It seems that I have to hold up some sort of essential human value that needs to be recognized rather than surrendered so readily. Well, I guess that there are two different kinds of surrender or blurring of the border between the, the human and, and what might be beyond. I guess you could talk about artificial intelligence replacing us or augmenting us. I know you you touch both these topics in your book, but augmentation is the pretty simple case. So, I mean, it's arguably already happening. We're, we're carrying around this smartphone at all hours of the day, and you could describe people as cyborgs already, given our reliance on these devices. And it really is just a bandwidth issue in terms of how quickly the data gets in and out of our brains. And if, if, we, if we were plugging our smartphones directly into our heads, well, then, then we would recognize we've been fully augmented. 
you know, there, there's a certainly a dehumanizing possibility there. I mean, it sounds fairly dystopian, and, and I, I would argue that our engagement with our technology now, in any given hour, it can seem fairly dystopian. I mean, it can be pretty fragmenting of one's attention and one's social relationships. And it's just that we need to be more intelligent users of these devices. But there's definitely a a way in which we do use them, which makes our lives better. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this, right? I mean, it's just like, you want to be an instantaneous touch with people in your life. Yeah, but, uh, you know, steroids don't make my life better for <laughs> for 45 minutes, too. I, I feel like, you know, we we augment ourselves at, at the peril of oversimplification. You know, I'm still, and, and I guess people are going to turn this off when they hear this, I still feel a difference between CDs and, and analog records. You know, I, I, and there's a... a I mean, when I look at, and I, I listen to Jaron about a lot of these things, about how different technologies get locked in, but when, when I look at the way music is being used in culture today, just, you know, everywhere you go, it's they're blasting music so you can't even speak. That's not music. You know, that's not, music is a, is a sacred body experience, and we, we oversimplify it. The things that we can't record digitally just don't make it to the next level of the simulation. We just end up leaving it behind. And it's just a, a, a almost like a, a snap to grid in a, in a graphics program. It's, it's like it, it, in the digital landscape, something's either here or it's there, but it's never quite in between. It's just not, it's missing something. And just as the people who think that they can not just, not just, I mean, in some sense, augment human intelligence, but bring our consciousness into various digital simulations and digital realms, I feel like they leave whatever it is that they don't know how to measure ends up being left behind. And that's where, that's where the danger comes. I and mean, we see it in the surface level in terms of the kinds of, of news or journalism or writing or thought or time that's left behind in our increasingly digital utilitarian universe. But the idea of, of using, say, I get special digital glasses that magnify all these things that I can look through, I'm still feeling like they're, they're missing stuff. The people who think that they can you know, recreate a human intelligence, that it's only a matter of, of processing power. You know, the only people I hear who say they understand what consciousness, are, what consciousness is are computer scientists. I talk to neuroscientists and they say, we, re we really don't know. It's more complex than we understand. So it's this, it's the, the oversimplification, I guess, that I get worried about more than anything else. Let's just take it piece by piece. Do you doubt whether there would be some augmentation of human consciousness that's technically possible that everyone would want and would be right to want? This is just clearly something we want to do. And the fact that we're no longer merely human, you know, merely apes, is immaterial. Right. I mean, sometimes it makes me feel like, well, am I the ape who says, I don't want to learn to speak <laughs> because, right, exactly. or read or, or anything, or I don't want to get a printing press because it's going to disconnect me from the manuscript that's handwritten by the monk. No, but I don't believe that the vast majority of people who are developing these technologies are doing it with my best interests at heart. You know, I feel like that currently they're they're propelled by business plans that are looking at how to extract value from me rather than how 
to enhance me. And I also have a, a, a real intuition that what we need as a civilization right now is not more abstraction or disconnection. I don't even feel like we fully dealt with the abstractness of human language, much less, uh, <laughs> much less text or television. You know, we're maybe just now seeing, okay, I get that not everything on television is true, but maybe not. You know, we just have been overtaken by reality TV. You know, that it's, it's become reality. So, and maybe this is why I still am a media theorist. So I feel like without a whole lot more media literacy and awareness, we can't go there. We need to take a moment, a moment's pause, and learn how to be with each other again in, in pairs and groups before we kind of venture further out. I'm really of two minds about many of these specific cases. So I'll just take the example of the conversation we're having now, right? So we're, we can't see one another. We're not in each other's presence. And we're essentially on a phone call here over the internet. And this is obviously limiting in a way, right? That this would be, you and I would both be having a, a richer experience of, of each other if we were face to face. It, it arguably could make for a better conversation, but in some ways, I mean, as, as the host of the podcast, I'm aware that it could make for a worse one in at least one sense, which is whenever I do live podcasts, I'm having a full bandwidth experience of the other person, and I can lose my sense of what is actually going to wind up in the resulting audio, right? Because I'm seeing their facial expressions and I'm getting, you know, their body language, and mm -hmm. and none of that's going to translate to the listener, and often. Things that, that happen, you know, for, for instance, at live events where there's a live audience, things work great in the room, but they don't actually translate so well on the podcast. And, and it's people wind up liking those episodes less. And so the fact that the final result here is a pure audio experience makes our recording it this way under the limitations that, we, you know, we've imposed on ourselves here, in, at least in one sense, an advantage, because I know exactly what I'm getting or not in each moment, and what the listener will hear. And the other side of that is that at least you could argue, I mean, that, that would also on its face seem like an argument for doing video rather than just audio, because you know, if, if I'm getting a richer experience of you when we're together, why not give the richest possible experience to the audience? But there's something more, I mean, I'm not the first to point this out. I mean, this, is, this has been observed for probably 100 years, but or 75 years at least, there is something more intimate about audio than video. And, and, there's, and, and certainly the, the boom in podcasting we've witnessed is the result of the fact that people are using pure audio in, mo in these interstitial moments in their lives when they're, you oh. know, when they're going about their day or working out or commuting. They've, everyone has found an extra 90 minutes in their day that they can listen to podcasts on or, or listen to audiobooks. Yeah, but look at what we're doing. You know, the, the McLuhan argument would be, yeah, you know, a radio is a hot medium and television is a cool medium. You know, the television and video is somehow distancing and objectifying. And audio, it, it is, it, it hits their body. You know, ideally they listen through speakers, but even with earbuds, we're moving things in their body. And it's, it's a, a, a single high resolution sense that we're, that we're coming through. So yeah, it, it, it's different. And you're right that by doing this through audio only over the internet, 
we're not creating a, well, you had to be there experience right. in any way because there was no there. So they're getting exactly what, what, what we're getting. I mean, I would think the, the best of all worlds would be for us to have engaged with each other in real life, to have established rapport at some point prior to this. So then when we engage online, and you know, there's some studies that say you get about 18 months of, of rapport equivalence after you've had, after you've established rapport oh, really? in that's, real life. That's the half-life of rapport? And when you don't. That's hilarious. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> at least when last, maybe the kids I are getting to check better my at calendar. Yeah. or establishing yeah. less rapport that's to begin funny. with. But the online thing, it, it's interesting too to me, and I wrote about this also, this, this, uh, and there have been some good studies on this, that you, know, you, you can't really establish true rapport. I use the word true strangely, but you can't really establish rapport in a way where, where your, your mirror neurons are going to fire when you're using something like Skype. And, and it's almost no matter how re high resolution you use, you do the video, you can't see the, the micro movements in their face. You can't see if their pupils are getting larger or smaller. So all of the subconscious cues that we use to establish rapport, they don't really work. But what they find happens then is if the person on the other side is agreeing with you and nodding, but your mirror neurons aren't firing and you're not really feeling it, then you leave that conversation feeling like, well, that person wasn't moron. really yeah, right. <laughs> agreeing with me, that they were lying. And you don't blame the technology for that. You tend to blame Interesting. the other person. Yeah, well, that's, that, that may cover some of my experiences on Skype. But to your point, yes, it's, it's, this is, it's a compromise in certain ways. But for the medium, this is a, a perfectly appropriate way of using this. But look, look at how old-fashioned a podcast is. With all of the internet and all of the bells and whistles and algorithms and 3D simulations and all that, the most popular thing going on right now, other probably than porn, the most popular thing going on now is radio. You know, where <laughs> the radio has become the content of the internet. Right. So you used a, a, a term a while back, extractive, that people have, various corporations have extractive business models, or they're trying to extract value from the customer rather than deliver value. What do you mean by that? We're here either to pay them with our money or pay them with our data. You know, that, that since really the dawn of corporatism in the, in the late Middle Ages, which is a period I, I write a lot about, about how we, we moved from this kind of short century or two of people trading back and forth with each other and living in an economy that was really optimized for the velocity of money. They had these currencies that would expire at the end of the day or lose value over the course of a week because they were just trying to promote transactions in the marketplace. Money was more like a poker chip, but the, the wealthy, the aristocracy was getting poor as the middle class was getting wealthy. So they made all of that illegal. They made small businesses illegal. You had to work for a chartered monopoly instead of having your own company. And they made local currency illegal. You had to borrow coin from the central treasury at interest. And really since then, since the establishment of these monopolies, the business has been about conquering new territories and extracting value from them, not helping them make value for themselves. It's why we fought the the American Revolution was uh, you know British East India Company wouldn't you you weren't allowed as a colonist to grow cotton and 
and make fabric from it. You had to grow cotton and sell it to the British East India Company that would bring it all the way back to England, make it into fabric and bring it back to America and sell it to you. So you, you weren't allowed to be really part of the value add. You were just working for the company or working really for, for the corporation. And that's really what's, what's carried through to this day. The, the, if you think about the relationship of not just of Facebook's users to Facebook, but Uber's drivers to Uber, they're not part of the value equation. They're just having their, well, if you're an Uber driver, you're having your labor extracted and the data. You know, you're just training the, the machine intelligences that will replace you. Whereas if there was an ownership model, then maybe they wouldn't, it wouldn't just be a matter of extraction. But when I look at, at most internet experiences, I do think, well, what, what are they taking here? And is this an exchange that I want to make? And I, I do think that part of the reason that so many of us feel so exhausted when we're having these online experiences is that they are, they're, they're not just financially extractive and data extractive, but on some level, essentially extractive, that we are up against the, the, the techniques that B.J. Fogg at the Captology Lab at Stanford is teaching his developers and the people that go to work at Google and Facebook and Instagram, whether it's, it's streaks and, and, and all the other little addictive features that they come up with. And I talk to the people, I know a lot of them who've made these things, and they feel guilty later. You know, they want to, then they invest in, in good things or they join the humane technology movement. And even those guys, and I think they're great. You know, there's, it's a, some, some, former, some former guys who are doing stuff they didn't like at Google and Facebook. They've started a movement called Humane Technology. And, but the, the construction of it, when they say humane technology, it makes me think of, you know, cage-free chickens that, you know, as long as we're going to be taking them to the slaughter, let's treat them as humanely as possible while we extract their data and extract their money. And I, I no longer feel like the user in these situations. I feel, I feel like the used. And the political economy of, the, of these media platforms, it supports that, that we are here to deliver value to the shareholders of these companies. And that's not the best relationship to have with the technologies that we're really bringing into our lives in such a, a personal and, and profound way. What do you think about Jaron Lanier's fix for this, which is everyone owns their data and gets compensated for the value that, that companies get from their data? First, I respect Jaron immensely. He's brilliant. And he, I, I believe he is a s smarter person than me and perhaps a nicer person than me. So with that said, when he talks about the idea that we could sort of use the blockchain and other technologies to almost calculate the value of each piece of data that I'm creating, what I see is, okay, so I get out of bed on the left side this morning instead of the right side. That piece of data is valuable to the Serta mattress company, which is doing you know, machine learning on how to develop mattresses or mattress commercials and marketing. So I'll get paid, you know, 0.7 cents for every time I get out of bed. And I feel like what it's doing is trying to put more and more human behavior on the books. And my impulse is to take more and more human behavior off the books, you know, rather than on. It's not a matter of having a better ledger for every bit of value I create. 
but moving into a world where we're creating abundant value for one another as a matter of course. You know, the the minute we want to keep track of it is the minute that someone else is going to try to game how that data is being managed. You know, that's how we got the financialization of the markets that we're living in. Right. Actually, I, ne- I never thought of that possible consequence to his model, which is if if so, we if we knew we were in that situation where we could, where we owned our data, and we could earn money giving more and more of it to these companies, well, then it would almost be like what what happens to people when they begin keeping track of their steps in the in the health app, right? It's like they become obsessed with how much they're walking that day, and you could argue at least for for steps, it's a good thing because they're they're getting fitter. But if this was all a matter of seeing how much your every gesture of attention could be monetized, you I mean, that, that compulsion, <laughs> the, the knock-on effects of giving all, everyone on earth that particular incentive could be fairly bizarre. Right. I mean, that's why when you talk about, uh, the one thing I would add is, you know, when you talk about how adding advertisements to your podcast would change the way it's received, I'd be even more worried for myself. What would putting ads on my podcast change the way it's delivered? How would I not fall into the trap of wanting to do whatever it is that's going to help me get those numbers to go up? So yeah, and that's why, I mean, that's my problem with the way that we're looking at the digital age is this kind of techno-solutionist frame that somehow marking everything down, having the right program, the right math, the right algorithm, the right spreadsheet is going to then lead to greater equality or something or you know and and while i see it having utility value in specific situations the same way that newton's laws work in certain neighborhoods i feel like they don't work as a kind of a as a universal framework for for human beings that they again they're going to reward what they can measure or what the market wants and they're going to leave behind the the weird David Lynch liminal stuff. You know, they're they're never gonna get us. It's that place that you find in meditation, you know? And 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 you write about this. It's 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 so profound and it's 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 what gives me faith, you know, beyond God or anything else that there's something to have faith in is that place that you that I've I've touched, you know, where it's like now nothing matters, you know, <laughs> or everything matters, but there's no more word for it. There's no number you can put on this. This is unmeasurable. This is infinite that we, that ceases to exist in this model. So how would you fix, so I mean, let's take it again on a kind of case study basis. How, if you had the power, how would you change Facebook or Twitter or any one of these prime offenders is are the are these fixable platforms? Yeah, I mean, Facebook was fixable. I I I knew Evan Williams way back when he was one of the founders of Facebook. I knew him back in his blogger days when he was just a sweet kid. And I remember when I saw his face on the cover of the Wall Street Journal the morning that Twitter had its IPO, and under his face was the number four point three billion. Huh. You know, it's the amount of money he earned that morning. And that's that moment I thought, oh man, this guy is fucked. You know, <laughs> Twitter is fucked. How is this beautiful 140 character messaging app possibly going to 100x, you know, to create 100 times returns on that sort of investment? It can't. They're going to have to kill it. They're going to have to do video or sex or, poly- you know, something else. 
And it, it was sad to me. So in the most of these cases, it's that these kids just took too much money. They took too high valuation. They didn't they didn't have to go there. So it, it seems that the easier the, the easier path is either and we joked about it, but then someone actually went and tried to do it with something like Twitter. Let the users buy Twitter. Let the value get low enough because the growth, even though it makes two or three billion dollars a year, that's not enough because it has to keep growing in order to justify its its share price. You know, let the users buy it back and you know and turn it into a commons of some sort, or or even let them let people pay to use it. But there's enough revenue just from the the ads that are already on it. You could crank it back and still have a, a, a you know a multi billion dollar profitable company. For Facebook, I think the easy thing was you know Facebook was hard to program back when it was programmed. Now it's trivial. You know to clone Facebook is nothing. So I would think I mean there's a few efforts out there. You just clone the thing, but make it the way we want to. You know, and and have it cloned by people who own a little platform cooperative, or let everybody who's on it be a part owner. You, you come up with an easier an easier business model. You can even have ads. You just don't do this. You don't. If you don't have to grow, then your advertising technologies don't need to become increasingly nefarious. You can support a Facebook with regular old ads. You know that are non intrusive and that don't initiate this arms race between users and advertisements and knowing what's real and what's not. You don't need to go there if you don't need to grow. So um, I would think in that case, you just clone it. Well, so is the imperative of growth what's so toxic or is it the imperative of growth married to an ad revenue model toxic? I mean, so, so like, let's say, I mean, I, I can only imagine that Netflix really wants to grow, but Netflix doesn't run ads. So are they experiencing the same problem with, with their attempt to get to scale? They are. I mean, scale is, is part of the problem too. And it's you know a problem both in business and in culture. So many kids I talk to think that what they're doing doesn't mean anything if they doesn't scale, if they don't create the website that you know, becomes the national site for this. It's just doing something locally, being appreciated by your peers, even if it's sustainable financially still feels like you know they haven't made it if they're not up there if they're not you know big you know it's like if my podcast doesn't become like yours or Joe Rogan's does that mean i failed it's like of course not you know it's like my 20,000 people are are my audience and i'm i'm good with that and that's cuz i'm not making money doing this anyway i i've got a job now so it's learning that but businesses don't no businesses need to keep growing and the the irony here is that you know the, the libertarians and 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 right wing corporatists argue that this understanding of business and growth is somehow based in nature, but there is nothing in nature that grows exponentially, not for any period of time, except maybe cancer, and then it kills its host. So when we're looking for companies to have these hockey stick growth graphs, it's always by destroying something, and it's always temporary. You can't keep growing forever. So eventually, what happens? You end up like Google, which is no longer a company. It's a holding company, which is creating synthetic growth through the purchasing and sales of other companies. So, you know, it is the problem. And for all of their education, I'm so surprised that the people who are developing all of these supposedly disruptive technologies 
can't acknowledge the operating system that they're all riding on, that they're all riding on this growth-based Silicon Valley entrepreneurial VC model, which is really anathema to creating a useful, sustainable application. Well, it's interesting because I, I don't, I, again, I'm, I'm viewing this through the, the personal lens of someone who's having to navigate this space myself with my podcast and my app. And it's, I mean, so take this, each piece you, you've put in play here. So the, this the problem with getting to scale is this sort of expectation of, of perpetual growth that is just not compatible with, with the nature of the world. But, you know, it can last long enough for lots of people to get rich and then abandon this now uh, crazy project um, when it fails. But what's wrong with getting to a certain scale and then delivering value to those numbers of people, whether it's 20,000 or, or 20 million? And perhaps it looks like a hockey stick when you're getting to this plateau. But once you get to this plateau, why, why can't you stay there? You should be able to. I mean, and this is what my book, Throwing Rocks, the Google Bus, was about, how growth became the enemy of prosperity. The problem is our, our monetary system, by being an interest-based system, demands growth. It just, you've got to keep paying more and more back to the bank. And how do we, as, a, as an economy, pay more back to the bank is through growth or more innovation or accelerating growth. So we need more. But if you're profitable, I mean, let's say you have a well, let me just take a podcast. Let's say you have a podcast that costs you, you know, fifty thousand dollars a year to run, and yet you make five times that on it, and you know you, your your audience doesn't grow or shrink, and that's fine for you as long as as long as you don't go public. That's fine as you know as long as you don't have have shareholders. So it's the public market you know, other... that 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 make this right. a problem. And it's the and it's our policy. So one thing I was I was trying to argue to uh, to Bernie's campaign because he kept complaining about billionaires and growth and the billions and billions is to is to get him to articulate how do we move from a growth based economy to what you're describing, which is a flow based economy. And one principal tool would be to reverse the tax code so that instead of rewarding capital gains and punishing dividends. We reward dividends and punish capital gains. So right now, if you tell your investors, I'll make you 12% a year in dividends on this stock, they don't like that because <laughs> they've got to pay tax on it. They want growth. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And incentives, the, the more you look, incentives really are everything. I mean, incentives are what will constrain human behavior when people are not really free to be uh, moral heroes moment by moment, and that's most of the time. So it's just you, you'll, you, you get what you pay for in that sense as well. Right. And the important thing is if, if people are now working on manipulating incentives in our daily lives, then they need to at least examine the incentives that are leading them. So we have a, a Mark Zuckerberg who has for the most part, surrendered to an incentive system that then, that then extends into the one that he's using on us. You know, where if he didn't have to grow, then he wouldn't have had to deploy such weaponized algorithms. Then his, his business model wouldn't be so easily hackable by anybody who wants to inflame, you know, the American public rhetoric. Mm. Yeah. One thing in your book and in, in uh, this conversation I, I noticed is that 
there's a tension between individualism and notions of collective value. And, and you know, much of your conversation and your writing falls on the side of, of the collective and, and our, our commitment to, to individualism, at least under you know, most of your framing, seems fairly toxic. And we're, you know, we've become atomized with it, and, and digital technology has enabled that and really enabled the, the, the worst tendencies of people not to make social connections with their neighbors or with um, even, you know, we even lose contact with our, our good friends. I could never remember the day, I never experienced the day when people would just show up at the front door for a visit unannounced. Supposedly, that world used to exist, but I certainly remember when people would just pick up the phone and call you unannounced. Now most phone calls in my world get set up, they get scheduled by email or text, and just a cold call, even from a friend, is, is often surprising. It is, it is sort of analogous to somebody just ringing the doorbell. So how do you view this tension? Because I, most people who are looking at this through a political lens, certainly in the center of our politics, see that there's a kind of ethical primacy to the rights and freedoms of the individual. And whenever we begin to subvert that focus and sacrifice individual liberty to the state or the collective, that those are situations where, in moments past, where we've really seen the worst ethical lapses politically, where just, you know, the government has just ground people in its gears, whether those are socialist gears or fascist gears, it doesn't really matter. How do you resolve that tension? I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not concerned with, you know, quashing the rights of the individual so much as, as promoting the right, the right of assembly. You know? I feel like that's what we're, that's what we're losing is the, the right or the opportunity of assembly. So, you know, when I, I have the right as an individual to gather with other individuals and without that, um, then my individuality is worthless. So when I look at the way that you know FDR and the Levitt brothers and psychologists worked to develop Levittown. It's a it's a one of the first suburban tract housing areas in in Long Island. They were specifically looking at how do we prevent the men from congregating. They were concerned about the all the veterans returning from World War II and that they would gather and and have you know labor uh, uh, labor organizing and just men drinking together, whatever it was, they created an intentionally desocial community. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's infringing on, on my right as an individual to find the others. You know, when Uber doesn't have a chat function on their app for drivers to talk to other drivers, you know, there's no person next to you on the gig assembly line anymore. You don't find them. You are, you are, are, isolated. It's not, you're not getting to express what I would argue is a majority of your individuality. But, you know, in terms of the sort of the cultural emphasis, I think it, it, it goes back and forth over the ages. So, you know, in the, in medieval times, maybe people were too much a part of their community. When you ask someone, you know, in, until the, certainly the 14 or 1500s, you know, where's your home or what is your home? They thought of the word home as their town that they come from. You know, my home is Venice. My home is this. Not my home is that structure, that house that I have over in Queens. 
when you have to sleep with your children into their teenage years and also your farm animals, <laughs> the collectivizing instinct has gone too far. So we're all glad it's not the 14th century. Yeah, but, you know, but the Renaissance really did invent, and it was a beautiful thing that the original humanism was about, you know, the Vitruvian man, that sort of, it was a celebration of the individual and, and who we are and, and all of our devices and, and arts were about, you know, perspective painting was about the perspective of the individual. The codec as a book was about a person sitting alone in his study, reading his book. You know, so much of it was about the individual emerging from the crowd. But that individualism has been, I, I feel like it's reached its, its end point that we've, we've fully, we fully got it in American consumerism. You, you're the one, you know, you deserve a break today. And because in the 1950s and 60s, marketers found out you sell more things to an individual than you do to someone who has friends. You know, you're not going to sell fashion blue jeans to someone who already has a girlfriend because he doesn't respond to that commercial that says, buy these jeans and you will get laid. You know, he's already getting laid. And that's why they wanted us to be, and they did, isolated, alienated individuals who connect to one another through products and never, never directly. So I'm not saying we should get rid of individuality at all, but that one of the most enlightened expressions of one's individuality is being able to experience intimacy with others. You know, so I'm looking for, you know, gathering places. I'm looking for um, new ways of establishing solidarity, even across digital networks. And that, I, I feel like that's what people are more hungry for than they are the, the sort of the digital womb of, of, you know, slipping on virtual reality goggles and, and going out there. So what are the examples of success on that front? I mean, you, is Burning Man a, one of these cases where the straitjacket of digital atomism has been thrown off and, and we've experienced some new, I, I say this as somebody who has never been to Burning Man, but is this, is this an example of, of success or is this something that is slowly getting perverted by these same trends? Well, it's interesting. I feel like what happened to the what happened to the internet and what happened to Burning Man are kind of the same thing. You know, here are these people, they're going to gather in this new way and there's not going to be any money and we're all going to just be together and exchange value and celebrate and have this, you know, kind of slightly tongue in cheek pagan mass ritual at the end. And it becomes, you know, now there's, you know, like the Google pavilion and people coming in giant trailers and, you know, and they're, they're, they're G5s to get there. It kind of became, a parody of itself in some ways. But I think that, that that urge is there. I think the the you know, for better and for worse, the urge of these all these co-working spaces is, you know, people who've been atomized by their computers wanting to get back together. You know, and and it's like when I read the the text on like a WeWork website, half of me is going, right, they really got it. And half of me is thinking, oh my God, I'm so afraid of of a of a of a new you know, corporation defining, defining our new cultural space as a workspace. <laughs> That's who we are. But I do see it. I mean, I, I think we see it not at scale, which is part of the, the beauty of it. I, I do think that young people in particular are starting to want to just hang out again. I think that, that we are reifying some of that. We saw it in, in Burning Man. We saw it in Occupy. You see it 
to some extent in the in the rave movement or, or electronic dance music, which is still around. But I'm doing events now, and I'm sure you do too. I mean, that one that thing you did with Jordan Peterson. You say we're going to have a conversation, and then, bam! You know what was that? Five thousand people showed up in 24 hours to come be there. You know, they could watch it on YouTube later, but they want to be together at something. So I do think there's this urge to commune is is ascendant. Yeah, it would, it would be interesting to. Yeah, I'm I'm continuing to do live events like that. I haven't thought of a way to use digital technology to really amplify the value of doing those live events because I, I'm I'm aware of the fact that people really do want to get in the same room together and there's some there's something that they're missing even when they they have this expectation that they'll always be able to to watch it on YouTube or, or listen to the audio but I, I haven't I haven't had the the brilliant idea that uh, that allows for it's kind of come back to this concept of scales like there's a scarcity there's no there's a just a, a natural scarcity to a live event, and you want to be able to allow more people to to get value from it, but also you want i mean there there's just something alienating about showing up at an event with thousands of people and there being no context to ever meet anyone new you just kind of it's like it's almost like going to a movie you all go to the movie and then you all leave the theater and you have your private response to whatever you experienced i guess you can all everyone jumps online and begins talking about it but there's some i feel like there's some bright idea that has not been had with respect to how to make live events of the future more connecting for people well i mean i'm it's part of what i i feel like i'm doing now and especially with this team human book it feels a little bit like a mic drop and not like i'm going to step off the stage altogether but i'm I'm feeling like, not like I'm giving up on the idea of having a mass audience, but I'm finding more meaning in these smaller events. And by small events, I mean, even just, you know, one or 200 people in a space, it's more like a a jazz club and doing a Team Human live recording and engaging with as many of those people as possible. Or I was almost surprised by how rewarding it is to be in a room with 30 or 40 undergraduates. And teach, I teach a course in propaganda at Queens College, and it's a, a city school. These are, this is public education. These are first-generation college students from their families, kids who work as a busboy in their parents' Chinese restaurant during the day and, and you know, an athlete's foot whatever at night, and, uh, uh, and then um, come to my class during the day. So it's very real, but the sort of intimacy that you can have spending 14 weeks with 30 people in a room it's like, as long as I'm not so precious about what I have to offer that, oh my gosh, if I don't reach the whole world with this, I haven't done my thing. No, you know, I've written 20 books. I've been on lots of TV shows. I got to do Sam Harris podcast. You know, it's like, good. I've done more than enough for any lifetime. And as long as I don't feel that weight of like, you've got to keep being national. You've got to get back on Colbert. You've got to do this. If I don't feel that, it's like, I can write these great, significant books. I've never written a book that's had more bottom-up groundswell and less top-down interest. And I'm not sure whether that's just because Trump is everywhere now and you can't get on. I've never not gotten like multiple national NPR shows asking me, you know, competing for me to be on for my book or gotten on Colbert, The Daily Show or something like that. And now it feels like the landscape in the last two or three years has changed. You know, and and 
I don't feel really that sad about it. I feel kind of okay that that I'm going to engage it in a sort of a bigger bandwidth with fewer people and see what that's like. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you never know what will get your book out there to people, though. I remember, honestly, the probably the biggest piece of publicity I ever got was, I mean, it might still be on, you remember Book TV on C-SPAN? Mm-hmm. They just aired one of my talks that I was giving during my book tour of The End of Faith, and they're airing it to, I don't know, you know, 20, there can't be more than 20,000 people watching Book TV on, on a weekend. On C-SPAN 3. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. It was, but like all of those 20,000 people are avid book buyers, and probably 50% of them just went out that day and bought the book, right? It was just a crazy spike in book sales for a piece of media that virtually no one apart from a, a real book lover has even heard of. And it was more important than any appearance I had on The Daily Show. Or It is interesting that like even then, you know, that's back in the day of publishing, you, you didn't know where it was going to come from. But And I, th- I think you know, digitally, we're in a very different landscape now where, you know, things like podcasts are arguably more important than television. Mm-hmm. I also worry that we're perpetually in competition with free versions of ourselves, right? I'm, I'm right. always fairly careful in conversations like this to not exhaust what is of interest in the person's book when they're on here promoting a book, because I just know that, forget about people's reluctance to buy things, everyone's dealing with this bandwidth problem where they feel like, you know, if they can get your full story or, you know, 80% of it from your TED Talk, or from your podcast interview, well, then you've just saved them a lot of time, right? They don't have to read your book. Oh, it's uh, so true. I mean, it's so funny. I uh, saw uh, Sherry Turkle or someone had this big uh, essay in the New York Times before her last book came out. So I was talking to uh, Katinka, my my agent, saying, oh, I'm going to go do one of those. And she's like, Doug, don't do it. (laughs) 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 And people will read that 2000 word piece and feel like they got your book. But then that also throws me into the, I mean, and we haven't done it here, but, but when I go and do a book talk, I sometimes can't help. I feel like I've got 100 people or 200 people in front of me. These ideas are so important to me. I'm just going to say as many of them as I can to these people. Yeah, yeah. And I know that's strategically wrong, but I sometimes wonder, what's the, what's, did I write the book to get on the show or am I on your show? to promote my book, you know, <laughs> and, right. and, and yeah. I feel both ways sometimes. Yeah, again, it's it's just weird to have to be at all mercenary about any of this stuff because, you know, our core interest here is that good ideas spread and bad ideas get shoved aside. And with that value in mind, we want to reach as many people as possible all the time with all of our best ideas. But again, you know, people have to have careers and you know, even I wasn't aware of until, you know, two weeks ago or whenever it was, of how dire the publishing is as a business is for most writers. It's just, it's amazing to me. So No, and that's why I'm, I feel so, I mean, I, I know you do too, so privileged to have gotten to do this for as long as we have and to write books as deeply personal as, as the ones we've gotten to write. But, you know, for me, this book is a departure. It's like the last three or four books I've written were real kind of intense nonfiction books about things. You know, I wrote Present Shock. It was about this sort of new always-on presentism that we're living in and how does that change our understanding of narrative and life and work. 
you know, or throwing rocks at the Google bus is like, these are the facts. This is where the digital economy came from. This is why it's not working. Here's what we do instead to a book that's intended. Here's a manifesto. You know, this is a, a book that's, that's supposed to have kind of object value that the experience of reading the book is a thing in itself, that this book takes you through an experience that's meant to get you to revalue what it means to be human, to change the way you see things. And I don't just do that with reporting, you know, with it's not a nonfiction book in that sense. It's meant a bit more like going to the theater or something. It's like, okay, go through this. I'm going to walk you through this trip. You know, so it's more like drop, <laughs> drop my book as if it were a tab of acid rather than a thing. So in that sense, I feel like I can go share anything about it. Because there's no, because there's almost, it's all polemic or no polemic. I don't know, but it doesn't feel like, in this particular case, I don't feel like my, uh, maybe it will, that my TED Talk will will kill the sales of the book. But I know it's 11 minutes versus, you know, 11 hours or whatever. Well, also there, there are many of us who just love books as objects. And, and I, I'm happy to notice that this book is beautifully published. Norton was my first publisher. They published End of Faith. And I am eternally grateful to them because they were literally one of, I think it was 16 publishers. And 15 had, you know, after some very um, encouraging overtures, finally declined to publish my first book. And, and Norton was the last publisher standing and they published me. I, I don't think I've seen a book published in this way by them. And it's, it's really a, a kind of a beautiful little package. And I know they really, they care. It's interesting. Norton, again, it's a worker-owned cooperative. You know, the, the editors own it. They actually offered the second least of all the offers I got for this book, but they understood what I wanted to do. They understood I wanted to create an object for people, a, a, so that the object is itself an almost a, a totem for this reclamation of humanity, so not to have a book jacket on it to make it like kind of like a little Chairman Mao's little red book right, right. object, as just to sort of reify the, the, the human space. I mean, yeah, you could get a digital copy, but the idea here, we're, we're still in this dimension. Let's, let's play here yeah. a while. How do you read books these days? Are you reading mostly physical books or do you, do you read on a Kindle? Oh, still like 90% physical books. I, mm -hmm. I'm, and maybe this is something about my, my age or whatever, but I, I feel more oriented in, in an yeah. object book. It, I, I sort of remember things better because of the different places things are on the page. Yeah, that's very common. You know, I like reflected light. And, uh, and I like just the movement. I like to be able to be anywhere with it. And I know you could take a Kindle somewhere and be with it, but I don't know. I guess I'm killing trees. I don't know. I still don't know what's better or worse than the environment. I suppose it has to do with how quickly you buy new versions of the Kindle. You know, if you keep one Kindle for eight right. years, maybe that's... Yes. You know, <laughs> the equivalent yeah. of a thousand books. You're a saint if you've got your 10-year-old Kindle. Yeah. And you're not killing trees. Yeah. Well, listen, Douglas, it's great to get you on the podcast and uh, have you walk us through the this changing digital landscape because... Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's great to be with you. I mean, I still, I don't know if I got my question answered, but I don't know if you have one or if there is one. It's like, it is, and I'm just being honest because I've got you here. So... Sure. Am I, is what I'm talking about, do you think what I'm talking about is real or is it a myth? In other words, this whole idea of there being some essential human thing, a, a, a purpose, a meaning that 
human beings have when we're together that 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 there's at least an emergent an emergent meaning of of the human project or is that am i am i barking up a, a mythical fantasy tree here well i think there are levels to it they're kind of independently true i mean i guess you could you could talk about deeper levels superseding more superficial ones but you know at some level we are social primates that for hundreds of thousands of years at least have been adapted to have our our value system our, our intrinsic value system endlessly played by our connections to other people you know and so losing those connections or you know losing their their tangible evidence or having them distorted by other things that are gaming our attention yeah it's easy to see that that comes at a cost now i, I think that there's corner cases which offer some disproof of the the ultimate necessity of of having value anchored to social space. I mean, the fact that you can put someone in a cave for 10 years and teach them something to do with their their attention such that they come out not floridly insane and unhappy, but, you know, something like a Buddha, which is to say uniquely sane, perhaps, and that this not come at some obvious cost to their ability to connect with others. In fact, you know, they come out of the cave and they suddenly become the most charismatic person and compassionate person anyone's ever met. You know, I, I've met those people, right? So th these are not people who, when you look at how they've spent their lives, they're not the poster boys for integration in community, right? And yet they become incredibly valuable contributors to their community once they start teaching. But that's it. You know, those are outlier cases. And for most of us, having good relationships and spending time with friends and getting out of the virtual spaces where the worst in us seems to get amplified, or at least the most petty in us gets amplified. I think you're totally right about that. And everything that is, you know, every trend that's taking us in the other direction is something worth worrying about. Right. And you don't, I mean, and that's the, the thing I'm trying to do is you don't need God or faith to do that, I mean, to to argue this, <laughs> which no, the, no. that our experience as humans, our sustainability as a civilization, is argument enough for appropriate real world social connection. It's also, I mean, the analogy for me with what's so perverse about what we're witnessing online is the familiar experience of road rage. Now, I mean, road rage is just this bizarre symptom of the you know the power of context where you know you have people that could be people who don't have an aggressive bone in their bodies i mean these are not people who would ever get into a bar fight or shove a stranger I mean, these people would avoid conflict even to a fault and yet you put them behind a wheel of a car and put them in proximity to other drivers whose driving style they don't like and you get these eruptions of murderous rage and this is such a common experience that it, it shows something odd about the human mind that it's, it's this vulnerable to context. And I view social media and you know online anonymity as a kind of a, a similar framing that just allows people to be at their worst again and again. In some ways, it gives us a false picture of how much partisanship and rancor there is out there in the world. We're not meeting these angry, hysterical people in restaurants and in stores and 
in coffee shops, but we're meeting them every time we even spend five minutes online. And and eventually we will be meeting them in coffee shops because that's going to be just as reality TV became reality, you know, social media reality will become social reality. This is a point you make at various points where the digital becomes real in surprising ways. I can't remember if this is in your book or if it's just in a talk I saw you give at one point, but you gave the analogy for these traffic apps. Maybe reiterate that here, just just how a traffic app is not just a matter of informing you about traffic. It actually dictates traffic. It substitutes for your map of understanding of where you are. you know. And then and eventually, if the, it, it depends whether or not you trust the traffic app, but it's going to send you through the neighborhoods that the people that own the app or that pay for the app are want you to go through. <laughs> so you're not going to pass, you know, one guy's store. You're going to be uh, going going in front of another person's store. So it's as if the map is. It's not even just like a random house map of your of the territory anymore. It's a pay to play map of you know of membership. I wasn't even thinking about that. I wasn't thinking about how advertisers can game it. I was just thinking about the fact that once you get enough people paying attention to traffic patterns on the app that information changes the traffic patterns. And then you have these fairly um, annoying outcomes where you have what were sleepy little streets, uh, residential streets, now become just these arteries for escaping the main thoroughfare. And Yeah, I did do a talk about that. And then I, because I had found out that there was a neighborhood that had gotten upset because the Waze algorithm had figured out that its little street could be a great cut through for cars that were stuck in traffic on the main road. So they started sending messages to Waze saying that there was a breakdown on their street, that there was an obstacle, you know, that traffic couldn't get through. And then Waze then figured out a way to know if those people were really in their cars or if they were just in their homes lying about uh, what was happening in the street. That's hilarious. It is an arms race. Yes, exactly. Douglas, this has been great. Is there any place online where you uh, you want to focus people or you, um, you want to give a Twitter handle or? I guess, yeah. Um, uh, if you're a podcast listeners, uh, go to teamhuman.fm, and there's a mm. nice big banner ad for my book there. So if you're interested in Team Human, the manifesto, just go to teamhuman.fm or any, any uh, hopefully, independent retailer near you just to give the little guy a chance. Yeah, and I, and I definitely recommend the physical book over the digital because it is a, a nice one. It's great, Douglas. I hope we connect in person one of these days. I want, I want the higher bandwidth version of you. Definitely. As well. I, want, I, want that, I want that of you. And, and thanks so much for having me on and for, for all the work you've done. It's been uh, very meaningful and, and enlightening to me over these, these last 10 years or so. 